I'm Choita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Many in the blind community have guide dogs. I don't have one, and I'm not sure I ever will. But in talking to those blind friends who do have guide dogs, I'm told consistently that having a guide dog changes how they move through the world. Fundamentally, guide dogs become more than a service animal, more than a pet or companion. It's a unique relationship, my guide dog using friends say, that transforms what it means to be blind and how they themselves relate to their blindness. Nevertheless, the team, blind person and dog, create a relationship that blurs the boundaries between sight and blindness, animal and human. Today, we discuss blindness, guide dogs, and interspecies relationships. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Choita Gupta. I'm really excited to bring to you the author of a, a truly prolific author who's written many books. And last fall, I think he wrote a book or, or two. And I said, I got to have Rod McCalco back on the show. And I never really got around to doing it. My bad. But Rod has recently published Letters with Smokey, Blindness and More... Blindness and More Than Human Relations. And uh, Rod joins me today to talk about the new book. Uh, hello and welcome to the program. I'm so glad you could join us today. Thanks so much, Juliet. It's good to be here. Who is Smokey and why is Smokey writing letters? <laughs> yeah, let me, uh, I should explain that. Smokey, first of all, was my late guide dog. He died several years ago. And I have a good, good friend named Dan Goodley uh, in the UK, teaches disability studies at the University of Sheffield. And uh, he he published a, a book during the pandemic, and I wrote him a, an email of congratulations. And the book title was Disability and Other Human Questions. So it just occurred to me that um, my late guy, Doc Smokey, might have something to say about that title. So I, I, I said to Dan that this is what Smokey told me, and he still talks to me, even though he's been, he passed on several years ago. And he said something like this, and I wrote a little email from Smokey to Dan saying something like, um, why are you talking about disability and other human questions? I dragged the blind guy around for almost my entire adult life. I know a thing or two about disability. It's not just a human question. And then in a couple, sort of just sort of joking around. And about two weeks from then, I got an email that said, Dear Smokey. <laughs> and it was from Dan. And then we just exchanged letters. Yeah. I mean, when you go back to read the book, it's a really fantastic and organic development of ideas. Uh, did you always have in the back of your mind that you were going to write a book based on these letters or did it all just come together organically? No, it, we didn't. We weren't intending a book at all. We were just passing the, the, the pandemic lockdown in different kinds of ways. And uh, so... We were just writing these letters. It was actually Tanya, my partner and colleague, Tanya Tichkowski, who first suggested it might want to, might make a book out of it after we were done the letters. Um, and then uh, uh, an acquisitions editor from the University of Manitoba Press named Jill McConkie asked me if I could send her the letters. And I said to her that it really wasn't an academic book in the traditional sense. And she said that she, she still liked to look at it. So she did. And said she loved it and wanted to publish it. So we went from there. Mm. And you were writing 
I, I hesitate to say for Smokey, but you were writing in Smokey's voice. In what in in what way was that challenging for you? Because there's a there might be a tendency to filter Smokey's impressions through how you might choose to recollect them. I mean, how would you have genuinely known what Smokey might have felt or thought about something? Well, I, speaking of genuine, I'm not sure I genuinely know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure any of us know that genuinely. But I think um, what I did is I, I, I took my experience with Smokey when he was alive or what Smokey refers to in the book as when we were together together and um, uh, took that communication and me knowing what he was thinking about and trying to say to me through the harness and through different sounds that he made, et cetera. And what I was trying to say to him through the harness and different sounds and talking. So I took that experience and just extrapolated into uh, how he might consider some of the things that Dan Goodley raised in letters to him. And, you know, one of the central preoccupations of the letters is really tackling this question of where animals and the treatment of animals comes in, in our thinking through about blindness specifically, but disability as a whole. And, you know, in the book, they say there's so many things we do with animals. We eat them, we pet them, we fear them. Uh, and of course, then you've got the service animal, which is, you know, la di da, you know, it doesn't really, <laughs> now you're helping the most vulnerable people. Uh, what does thinking about animals or, you know, are more than human kin do when we, in, in helping to deepen or broaden our understanding about questions around disability and questions of blindness? I'm not exactly sure. I think um, terms like service animal, working animal, those sorts of terms tend to emphasize the, the notion that disability, uh, in my case, blindness, is merely a technical problem, that it's requiring technical solutions. So, you know, we often hear the phrase, um, I'm just like anybody else, except I do things differently. And that is probably the most simplistic disingenuous understanding of blindness that there is. Of course, we do things differently. And of course, we use technology to do things. But so do people who see, you know, that's what a refrigerator is, technology or anything else like that. So I think I tried to see that Smokey would consider himself more than a technology, more than a technical solution to my technical problem of blindness. So I think what I tried to get across in, in, in the letters with Smokey, with Smokey's help is, um, or maybe the other way around, is that service animal and working animal is, were terms that just, as I said, emphasized that blindness is a technical problem and it's the farthest thing from a technical problem. Seeing is a technical problem as well. And people who see use all kinds of technology but we wouldn't say that being cited is a technical issue. In the in the letters, in many places, the phrase uh, that Smokey helps uh, move you towards a different conception of blindness or a different concept of blindness uh, and provide some context to blindness, this, this theme comes up again and again. What are you getting at with that? I think um, when I began to lose sight to the point where I needed some some way of getting around, like a white stick or something, um, I, I, I think, I think I was still thinking of blindness as what I was suggesting earlier. It was just a, a real tragedy that I couldn't get around even with, uh, 
the 10% vision I used to have. And that I, now I needed this clunky white stick. And um, I think what Smokey did for me was to show that blindness wasn't necessarily and only a tragedy of losing sight, but it was an occasion or an opportunity to see a world that, that hasn't been seen before by sighted people, to kind of understand that blindness, far from being the lack of perception, is perception. It's, a, it's not just the way to see the same world differently, it's a different world. But that requires a lot of attention to the perception of blindness, to understanding blindness as an opportunity to move in the world in a way that sight just cannot move. I, I was really struck by one anecdote related in the letters, which is about your first day with Smokey. You're now home from the from Oakville, the guide guide dog training school. You've had your graduation and you know, you've been learning all the commands and learning them well, left Smokey, right Smokey, forward Smokey, everything's hunky dory until you actually get out on the sidewalk and suddenly you're hesitating. And it's in the letter, Smokey says, Okay, well then I just thought, you know, right looked really good. And I went in that direction and the guy had a smile on his face. Uh, tell me, you know, we, we got that anecdote from Smokey's recollection, but what was it like from your point of view that first day out with your guide dog all by yourself? Well, all by myself in my neighborhood, Joey, it was, it was trepidation. I was so excited and yet a little, little afraid that I might mess up, you know, because Smokey was very well trained. And I referred to, the, I was just sort of being ironic with the service animal thing and Smokey refers to his training as postgraduate education for a dog. <laughs> yeah. But I got out on the street and uh, we got to the curb. It was the corner of Dufford and Sinclair West, actually. And I just thought, which way am I going to go? And Smokey never liked the fact of hesitating. He always liked me to make up my mind and do it quickly. So I just stood there and suddenly he just hung a right. And I just smiled. I said, okay, let's just hit it. And we did it that way. And, and right, right to the very end, when we were on subway stations, when we got off into a subway station that I didn't know that I hadn't been to before, I would the door would open, and I would just say, "Smokey, okay, let's go, let's go out," and he would just go. So he would just uh, he would decide a lot of things. And you know, in the book, you you spend a lot of time discussing these really heavy concepts. And one of the things that you talk about in the in in the letters is you know, Dan Goodley says, well, it feels like we're blurring the lines of friendship. And, and, and then in response, at one point you say, but, you know, that's your vision that you have where you see and you appreciate the blurriness and things. Now, for a lot of people, when their vision starts to glow blurry, they aren't exactly like, you know, they don't go, woohoo, my vision's going blurry. Usually people start to freak out. What is so fantastic about being able to appreciate the blurriness in life, whether it's in friendships or other relationships? I think that's a really good question, Joey. That's um, uh, actually Smokey and I have been thinking about that for a long time when we were working together, together. Um, there's a kind of a blurry sense of, of blindness, a blurry sense of the relation between the human and the animal, etc. And um, I think what Smokey was getting at there was that the contemporary way of doing cultural studies and disability studies, etc., is to suggest that we are blurring um, the, the boundaries between what are otherwise considered to be very clear distinctions like man, woman, blind, sighted, 
and that these these are actually boundaries that are pretty fluid. I think some is a term many scholars use. So what Smokey was getting at was we didn't blur these 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 uh, distinctions like a friendship. They were already blurry, but then as human beings, what we did was create them as fixed entities, like a friend is this and not that, a man is this, a woman is that, and we did that. And then we start blurring them, but they're already blurred. We're the ones that made them fixed, we people. So it's just kind of interesting and ironic to me and actually humorous that, that we, us scholars, us academics sometimes take credit for blurring things. When they were already blurred, we the ones that fixed them. So I think that that's what Smokey was trying to get at, kind of making a little bit of fun of uh, of academics there. <laughs> um, the other thing that, that is in the book that I found was quite funny is, you know, he says, the Smokey says, you know, listen, you've got experts for all kinds of things, but, you know, right. uh, as an, as an, as an animal, I have, we have a lot of expertise on humans as well. Um, what, in what ways would you say that Smokey allows a certain kind of expertise to develop about, about blindness as someone who spent his adult life uh, to quote the letters, dragging a blind guy around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. I think, um, I think in, in, especially in, in contemporary times, we have experts for everything. When you listen to news, for instance, they'll, they'll have a story and they'll get an expert in it. You know, it could be an expert in like some major, major thing like the Middle East or an expert in parenting or an expert in like, almost anything. Uh, expert in Halloween, you know, <laughs> lately. Uh, so I think what Smokey was trying to do there was trying to suggest that there are experts right in front of us, many of whom we don't notice. For instance, like guide dogs. They're not only experts in um, guiding blind people. They're also experts in beginning to guide blind people if blind people decide to be guided into new and very creative conceptions of blindness. They're experts in that, but like any other sort of expert, you need to first of all recognize that and then take their advice. But uh, in, in, in the realm of today, there's just experts galore for everything. And Smokey was again, kind of being ironic and making fun of the human it's almost like a visceral need to have an expert <laughs> in almost anything. <laughs> in another letter, um, and and I ha and it was a revelation for me because I don't have a guide dog. But in another letter, Smokey is describing you know all these obstacles for Rod that is, and he's talking about uh, the caution tape and at, at at construction sites and saying you know I can get underneath it, but it would you know it's not that it would hurt Rod, but he's going to wonder what what on earth is going on. What is that thing? And he talks about shifting his vantage point, you know, and having to look at things very differently. Oh, well, that's, no, that's beautiful, Jyoti. Uh, Jyota, the thing is, when Smokey's moving through the world with me, or by himself, he, he is at about my knee level. He was, uh, his head came just above my knee. So that's how he was looking at the world. That was his vantage point of the world, visually. And um, all of us in the world have a vantage point, which is to say, we see the world from some position. And one of those positions is a physical position. Our height, whether we're wheelchair users 
etc. Um, other kinds of positions are positions of our gender, our race, our ethnicity, all sorts of things, our social class. Those are all vantage points. So, you know, eyes never see, people do. And we see with our loves, our hates, our aspirations, our fears, our anxieties, and that's how we see the world. One of the ways Smokey sees the world is to see it as a way to take care of someone else, as a way to take care of me in this instance. That's what Smokey, I think, was trying to get at. Maybe we, as human beings, ought to see the world as a way to see how we can take care of others. But, I mean, you take care of Smokey, too, in the in the more obvious sense of, like, food, water, and picking up the poop, uh, but also, you know, vet visits and making sure that Smokey isn't being mistreated or, you know, you know abused by anybody. In, in thinking about caring, then, how does it... How does it shift your conception, or are you hoping it will shift the reader's conception of um, human-animal relationships? I mean, you also spend a lot of time discussing what the right term should be for that. I mean, the the distinction between humans and animals is one that humans have created, after all. That's right. Yeah, it's that's a difficult question. You know, even having written the book with Smokey and Dan, it still is difficult for me to say that, Joita. What? what it should be or what it is for that matter. But there is, a, there is a relation between humans and animals that, as you say, is a human creation. So how we see animals and how we understand animals and experience them is based almost solely on our, on our understanding of the difference between us, people, and animals. But we do say that we're different. Now, how we fill in that difference is is the the crucial thing so it's our choice there's a gap between animals and people how we fill that gap in is up to us and quite often in in human relations that gap is filled in with cruelty with treating animals as merely service at our service or working for us rather than saying we cohabit a world we live together in a world and what's the best way to do that is, is the question. So I think that's what Smokey was trying to raise is that eventually we have to think about the best way to live together. People and animals, people and people, etc. As you think about, you know, one of the, some of the more vivid, um, you know, you, you paint such beautiful pictures with your words, but some of the most vivid um, recollections for me in reading the book are about Smokey traversing the hustling, bustling city of Toronto uh, and then going off to a small town in Nova Scotia. And he sort of talks about it being semi-retirement, you know, and not having too many people, not too many traffic stops, none of that. Uh, what does, what or what did traversing the world with Smokey uh, get? What did traversing the world with Smokey get you to think about or think differently about in terms of the design of physical spaces? I know it's something that a lot of blind people like to think a lot about, but as you as you sort of evaluate the the design of physical spaces and, and our cities and sidewalks, is there something about the way in which Smokey led you through these different environments that has got you thinking differently about how we design physical spaces? Oh, I think so. I mean, it's, uh, as you know, and as I'm sure many people know, uh, the world is designed for and by 
people who conceive of themselves as able-bodied or sighted, etc. And people like me and you and others are then almost second thoughts. So buildings, uh, streets, etc., uh, are created for those who see and by those who see. And once in a while, we're consulted to say how best for us to fit into this kind of already structured world. But the world is not created by us for people who see. Um, there's often complaints by, by able-bodied people that we disabled people are too expensive to accommodate totally. You know? And the, the most expensive accommodations ever are for people who see and able-bodied people. I mean, lighting itself costs a fortune to accommodate sighted people. Yeah, I remember taking your lecture, and you had made the point. You had made the. You had made your. You had made your that point in the lecture that I'd taken with you so many years ago. Uh, in your, you know, it's like, well, you know, all these people get chairs and tables and lights and all this other stuff handed to them. Um, in in towards the end of the book, you and or Smokey and Dan Goodley get into this. A completely nerdy, if you'd allow me to say this, completely nerdy debate about uh, whether we should have a disruption or a disturbance. Uh, just lay out the debate for us in its broadest terms, and why was the why did the de debate take on a life of its own? Well, it's funny because people who who do disability studies, which is something I've done for decades, as you know, um, always talk about disability as disrupting normalcy. They just say disability disrupts normalcy. And of course it doesn't. It just makes normalcy stronger. You know, when, when disability shows up, whether it's in the form of people, disabled people, or in the form of a, a threat, like, you know, you could lose your eyesight, so take care. Normalcy kicks into high gear and we normalize everything. In order for disability or we, disabled people, to disrupt normalcy, we have to do a lot more than just show up a lot more. And unfortunately, we really don't. Um, like, for instance, the thing about, um, uh, you know, getting through the world and how it's designed. One thing working with Smokey taught me is that blind people can knock the hell out of the world and how it's designed. We can move through it a lot quicker and a lot better than any sighted people can. So that was kind of fun to, to, to realize that we could beat sighted people at their own game. And, and uh, I, th I think the disturbance, disruption debate was, I said that we need to be, we need to be like artists, like James Baldwin said, you know, the incorrigible disturbers of the peace. When we find normalcy peaceful, or we find seeing peaceful, we need to show through blindness that seeing isn't perfect, that there's a lot of stuff that sighted people just can't see. And we blind people can help them see some of that stuff. When you think about one of the other things that was that comes up in the book at around the time that you you share your recollections or Smokey shares his recollections of a of a mutual uh, late friend Mary Jo Nadeau, is this idea of community. Why is the theme of community so important in the letters? I think whenever we move through the world, in whichever way we do, we are communal. We are moving together with other people whether we know them or not. We share space with other people. It's that sharing and that movement with other people that needs to be a lot more on our minds, a lot more part of our conversations and discussions with each other than it is. 
we rarely, rarely speak about moving in the world together with others. We speak about moving in a world where there's other people, but then it's kind of a more almost self-centered movement. How do I get through the world? Rather than how do I experience this world that is made up of others? It's me and others. The world is, is, is just automatically something we share, but we rarely think about the shared world. So that this, 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 this thing of design you brought up earlier, even, even to think that disability exists in the world should be part of design, not an added feature, but an essential feature of designing anything. So I think that that's what we meant by community. Uh, your first letter to Dan Goodley goes out in September 2020, and then for the next, something like that, and then it, you, you, you write in Smokey's voice for the next six to seven months, and you, you occupy this, this truly incredible and unique space. What did the project mean to you on a personal level? Because that's a long time to, uh, to spend thinking about your guide dog with whom you evidently had a very close relationship. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think that um, what this book meant to me is I, I'm now retired as a professor and as, as I grow older and uh, I think about um, what, what have I contributed as a blind person to the world? What have I left the world with in relation to understandings of blindness? And um, how, how do I how do I begin to speak about or think about my understanding of blindness as I lived it in the world? How do how do I get that across? And and did I live it? Did I live it well? Did I did I do blindness justice? And I think speaking through Smokey's voice really allowed me to at least at least raise some of those questions, not necessarily answer them, but at least raise some of the questions about my responsibility and how I need to move in the world of many blindnesses, of various conceptions of blindness that are floating around our culture and how I maneuver those conceptions, negotiate them and what I bring to them and what I'm, what I'm going to leave in the world. So that, that's, that's, Smokey just allowed me to do that, at least at least to begin to address that. In the close of in the close of the book, in your last letter, you say this was the this is the first of 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 a series of letters, and I'm sure there'll be more. Will there be more? And what more do you envision will happen down the road? Oh, I, I I'm not sure, Joita. We'll we'll have to see. Uh, I do I do uh, think of Smokey a lot and daily, and have some version of communication with him. So um, there, there's a lot that he has to say about blindness, about disability, about the world. And um, we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> Rod McElko, thank you very much for speaking to us today about your book. It's a fantastic read. Thank you so much for putting it out in the world for us. Oh, you're very welcome.
Rod Michalko is the author of Letters with Smoky, Blindness, and More Than Human Relations, which is published by University of Manitoba Press. Uh, it is really a fantastic read. If you have a chance to pick it up, uh, pick it up. It's not your quintessential textbook. Uh, so even if you're a non-academic, uh, I think there's a lot you would take away from the book that's enjoyable, relatable, funny. Uh, so do, I do hope you have a chance to grab a copy of that book. And if you have any feedback, you can always leave us your feedback down below where we have our comments. But you can also write us at feedback at ami.ca or give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And do leave your permission to play the audio on the program. And you can find us on X at AMI-audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI. Our videographer today has been Matthew McGurk. Our video editor is Jordan Steves. Marco Flalo is our technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for AMI-audio podcasts. And Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. Thanks for listening. 